I am speaking to you for Guinnesses Down from the Dublin airport, getting ready to hop on a flight, head back to Santa Cruz, and attend the Global Waves Conference, which I'm speaking at on the afternoon of the 7th with Greg Long. So if anyone is in town, check out the Global Wave Conference. A lot of uh, leaders of conservation in the ocean world will be there. This podcast is with Fergal Smith. Fergal is one of the most well-known professional surfers from Ireland and has a really interesting story. He was on the pro surfer train and along the way decided to pursue a different life. We recorded this in Ireland on Fergal's farm at about 9.30 p.m. with a few cups of tea um, Ireland, wow, what a place. Heavy waves, thoroughly frightening and majestic. Uh, it was a great experience. I, I came over with Greg Long and photographer Al McKinnon, who shoots for Patagonia and is a great guy. I recommend checking out his, uh, his Instagram, his, photogra- his photography. Um, great trip all around, still in one piece. And uh, felt like I was able to get myself into some some situations that uh, scared me. And uh, that's always good, because that's how we grow. Before I get going, I want to thank Jamie, as well as Swan. uh, Jamie and Swan for donating on the podcast this week on Patreon. Sorry, the Guinnesses are kicking in. (laughs) I'm going to get this podcast going right now. But uh, thank you guys for donating on Patreon. Uh, I really appreciate it. And you will not be able to get in touch with Fergal Smith because he doesn't have Instagram. He doesn't have Facebook, doesn't have anything like that. But he uh, is most of the time on his farm, permaculture farm that he is developing in Ireland. And I believe he mentioned something, um, a website that you can check out uh, to learn more about that during the show. So I'm going to stop talking. Uh, and let's get this going. Please welcome Fergal Smith. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Let's get this going. Um, how'd your session go today? Uh, interesting. Um, I've got this cool wooden surfboard. I've been trying to ride wooden surfboards for years, and if anyone's kind of been in that kind of world, it's been a bit kind of a little frustrating because they're a bit heavier and things like that. And totally wood boards anyway. And that's a balsa board, right? Yes, yeah, so it was just totally balsa and. A guy's come up with a cool kind of technology where he's using a CNC machine to cut out a solid block of balsa. Okay. And just leaves a honeycomb pattern in the deck. So all the wood's actually taken out. You just have this strong kind of... So it's hollow inside. Yeah, it's just like a honeycomb pattern that's left. Okay. And then laminate over it. Nice. It looks kind of thick in the nose. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, a shaper, Luke Underwood. He's a shaper locally. It was his file yeah. that he gave, um, but it wasn't a board for Riley's today. It was just a fun board for you know a beach break. But I'm just trying to promote the the brand for him, try and get his boards out there and promote the wooden kind of revolution. So. Well, it's cool to have a good surfer riding different equipment. Because a lot of people won't make that switch if they don't see someone who can actually ride the equipment well. Yeah, so I just, I've, yeah, I've been surfing it the last few weeks and uh, just wanted to get some good waves on it. And I hadn't really thought about it. I just like, yeah, yeah, it'll go, it'll go all right, Riley's. And yeah, then I hadn't even looked at the dimensions. Then I turned it over and I was like, oh my God, it's 19 and a half wide. This, there's a reason why my, I'm bogging my outside rail every time I take off. So I had a couple of shockers and then i got two nice ones so i was happy in the end nice 
Whew, what a spot, man. Yeah. That was yeah. mind-blowing. I didn't paddle out, but uh, it was... It was... It's a special place, man. The place that, that you live, with the cliffs are... They're breathtaking in the background, and uh, the energy that you receive in the mm. seas here is uh, yeah. it's unique. Yeah, no, it is. It's like going into therapy down there. Just the, the amount of yeah energy in in the air is is yeah, it's powerful. It's cool. Yeah. Um, what's it like for you seeing it kind of change now? There were it was crowd. Yeah. It, there was a crowd out there. Yeah, yeah. There has been for quite a few years, so it's kind of used to it now. Like the very beginning, it was amazing, you know, just like you and whoever you decided to go with. And yeah, they were cool days. But um, yeah, like good waves don't stay empty for too long, really, in the world anymore. Yeah. It was you and Mickey Smith and a few other guys yeah, early yeah, on who yeah, discovered a lot of these waves. Yeah, it was Mickey who found it. And then, yeah, I was surfing there for probably a few years, just a bunch of us. And then, yeah, it just quickly kind of... And it, we're happy as well to share it with people. It's, there's no issues with sharing good ways with people. I suppose if it kind of just gets a bit mobby and you know, bits, you know, a lot of a bit too much. Like when there's a scene around it and people aren't that respectful, maybe you know that's when it becomes a problem. But sharing good ways with people is is a pleasure. You know? Right. Well, a lot of the waves around here too have a very high barrier to entry. Yeah, yeah. You need to be an expert surfer to go out to Riley's. Yeah, I mean, I was sitting there with with Greg Long on uh, the rock there, and we were like, "Yeah, I don't think I would have made that one." <laughs> yeah, I don't think I would have made that one either. I mean, it's uh, and you you'll go out on the bodyboard as well when the tide gets too low. Yeah, so I, that, I usually get to yeah really lengthen out my surf when it gets a bit low. I can trade up for the bodyboard, and I had a lovely surf after after I went in on the wooden board and had a great day. Nah, yeah. good for you. Yeah. Do you um? You went from traveling around the world as a pro surfer, getting on the cover of Surfer Magazine. I remember seeing those photos mm -hmm. of you. Beautiful shots, man. Um, to a kind of a diversion. Um, you know, you, you went off on uh, another path. What was the? What did the conversation sound like in your mind when you were making that decision? Yeah, it was. There, there is a point, a quite clear kind of light bulb moment. Um, it happened when I was in Tahiti, actually, and I've been, I suppose, it'd been brewing for a while. But I had a yeah, got there, start of. I usually went away for three months every summer. I just head away and chase waves in the southern hemisphere and smashed my knee really badly, and I was just kind of sitting on a couch for a week, wondering if it was gonna get better. Was this at Chopu? Yeah. What happened? Just. I don't even know, just being over keen one morning, just thinking I'd try and get a big one before people kind of turned up and just, yeah, went kind of knee first into the reef. And, you know, here probably wouldn't have been that big of a deal wearing a wetsuit, but no, no wetsuit. Yeah, it was pretty sore and it was just a big bad bruise, really. But I didn't know how bad it would be and if I would continue traveling or head home. And I just was sitting there on a friend's couch for two weeks, I think, in the end. And it was at the time when uh, the nuclear plant was sinking into the sea in japan yeah fukushima yeah so i was watching that uh, at the same time and i was like well that's obviously not good and i'm in that ocean you know here and i was like yeah just questioning you know the world my life what i'm doing all that stuff and yeah just had that kind of light bulb moment is like okay and i've been to tahiti maybe eight times at this stage and it was always a dream as a kid to go to tahiti and surf chopu so i'd been going there quite regularly and getting good waves and I was going to Australia every year getting good waves and then I got to the point where I was like okay so do I keep doing this and like how many trips is enough and how many waves is enough and and also before then up to that point I'd always been kind of struggling sponsorship and money wise because yeah just starting out with no money and then I was actually sponsored and I was actually getting to zero and, and, and then plus and then it got very uncomfortable because I was like, I'm getting paid to do this, and I just keep keep doing it. Is that it? And I didn't. It just didn't really sit very well with me. Because when you're struggling and you don't have anything, you really have to like work hard to even get to these waves. And that was the real mission. Like I wanted to go to Chopu. I wanted to go to Narlu. I wanted to go to these waves. But then when I was actually in the plus and I'd been to these waves, I'm kind of like, 
well, now what's the point? Like, that was my mission. And I got there. And then anyway, it all came tumbling down in very clear light bulb moment where I was like, I need to go home and do something kind of positive with my life. Because not that it wasn't positive before, but like seeing what's going on in the world, you either decide to be a part of the solution or you continue being slightly part of the problem. Did you feel like you were a, bit a part of the problem as a traveling pro surfer? Totally. Like, you know, from the first time I went to Tahiti till the last time there was a change, you know, mm. it was only huh. a, a few years. You know, the queues into KFC and McDonald's are getting longer and the f beautiful fruit is lying on the ground and you're like, this isn't good, you know, and there's more plastic in the water, you know, all these things. The fishermen are going further out to sea, like you hear it every year and you're kind of like, yeah, that's not good and I'm going to get back on the plane and go to the next place. Did you ever feel though, like as a pro surfer, you could use your voice to talk about these issues? Well, I suppose I kind of am now, like, because at the time when you're getting paid by a company that's, you know, selling products, it's not really that solid of a place to be talking from. Mm. You're getting paid to go traveling and wear stuff to sell stuff. So it's not really, you know, the place to be talking about it. It depends which company you're with. But um, yeah, and I did. So I got that kind of point in my life and I emailed all my friends, all my family, all my sponsors and told them, I'm kind of not into this anymore and I want to do something about it. And I racked my brains, what was the best thing I can do? And I grew up on an organic vegetable farm. I was like, I can do that. I can go home, I can grow food, I can feed people. And that's something I can do. So I said that's what I was doing. And if anyone wants to help me do it, cool. But that's what I'm going to go do. Did your uh, parents grow organic they still are, yeah. They still are. So that was an influence from an early age. Yeah. You, you were out using your hands in the dirt, kind of yeah. understanding how the system works. You uh, you got the point early on that lettuce doesn't come from the supermarket. Yeah. And like, because a lot of people would say, wow, you know, a, surf, a professional surfer who starts growing vegetables, but it's not actually the story. It's like, I am a farm kid who went surfing. So it's the other way around. Like, it's really weird that I went surfing. I left a farm like culture, inland, not by the sea, no kind of surf history, no surf culture, anything. And I just had a dream to go surfing. So all I've done actually has gone back to what I grew up doing. Wow. What was, uh, what influenced your dream to go surfing initially, do you think? Um, like my dad started surfing, just get away from the farm and my brother. So kind of just got hooked from that straight away. And then, yeah, just... I suppose we got good waves here, and that was amazing. That was inspiring, but we didn't have the people riding them. So I wanted to go to the best waves in the world and watch the best surfers in the world riding them, and that was kind of my my mission. And, yeah, I got to see the best surfers in the best waves and then come home and then really kind of put it to practice. But did you feel like when you got to that point where you were getting paid to surf, you were taking all these trips around the world, like was that point of like, okay, is this, is this it? Was it, was there a kind of like an empty feeling inside that left you wanting more? Like, what did it, yeah, there's did it feel like? a bit like that. Like it wasn't that I was over it. Like I absolutely loved every bit of it. I, I would love to do it more still if I could, but actually it was kind of like, you know, I've done it, you know, I'm actually really lucky, really privileged and kind of grateful and I don't want to like almost be ungrateful and just continue doing something until it ends right I was like yeah this is great I'm so buzzing like cool now I'm gonna go do something else and there's the other empty bits where it's like as a you know you know professional surfer you're pretty much alone you know you're on your own your own board bag going deciding where you're gonna go which wave you're gonna take off it's just you 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 and the and you don't have any commitments to anyone or anything because you can't, because you don't know. I literally wake up in the morning and go, you know, where's good? Is it, you know, Australia? Is it Fiji? Wherever. And I go. And so I couldn't tell anyone anything if I was actually going to be there. So I really, I think I really craved community. I really craved being of service, being of kind of use to the, to the world. And now I'm the exact opposite. I have more commitments than I could even list. Like, it's crazy, which is the complete opposite of what I used to be like. But there's a really nice feeling being committed to people saying yes i will be there and i will be able to do that for you and i think i really lacked that in my life so that was one thing i think i was craving coming home yeah with the um the wanderlust lifestyle it comes with a lot of freedom um but it also comes with a difficulty to um also be able to learn about anything 
deeply, really. Like, I think that you need to t- have a lot of, like, it's, for, for me, example, it's difficult for me to get a lot done on the road, especially as I'm on a surf trip in Ireland right now. Like people think, oh, you're just hanging a lot. Like, you're kind of always on the move. So mm. to sit down and say, all right, I'm going to commit to a month-long permaculture certification course right now is very difficult to do when you're on that kind of tempo. Yeah, totally. Um, do you, it, it, like, I think that one uh, issue that a lot of people have is that they have this kind of idea of permanence, like that life is permanent. They yeah, don't like yeah. to think about death. They don't like to think about the fact that this is all fleeting and temporary. And yeah. You got a barrel this morning that will, you know, that same barrel will never happen again. You're yeah. a pro surfer for a, little, for a little while, but that was a temporary yeah. experience. And one thing that I'm gleaning from you already is that you have a very graceful way of understanding how temporary it all is and that the seasons change and plants grow and they die and they turn back into soil. Um, and it's, I think that it allows us to, to move through life without kicking and screaming. Um, and a lot of times when we have this permanent, this permanent mindset around life, it, it kind of ossifies the learning process. Mm. It holds us in this state of, of identity that is now in the past, you know, and right before we went on the podcast, you were saying that like, well, you know, I'll, I'll probably say something now that I won't believe in a few years, which is fucking great (laughs) because it means that you're constantly learning. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, uh, was that always the case for you? Yeah. I I suppose I'd be very, um, kind of perspective thinking and I just, I always see 10 steps ahead and I always think like that. And like the, that time in Tahiti when I bust my knee, basically I decided to come home after I smashed my knee. I was like, I'm coming home now. And my mom gave me a good giving out to and said, you're in Tahiti. Like, enjoy it. And you're on the other side of the world. There's no point flying back now. You might as well get a bit more out of it while you're there. And I was like, okay, fair enough. So I did the opposite then. I went crazy and I went like to every swell possible for the next two months. And it was the when I went to the Fiji, actually, on a, that amazing swell. So I just went everywhere for about another two months. You were there on the, the big historic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thundercloud day. Yeah, it was amazing. Wow. So uh, I ended up just going crazy doing all these things. But what I did is I went to all the places that I've been going to for years and said goodbye to everyone. And I said, like, said, I won't be coming back. Like, that's that's me. I'm done. And I'm not flying anymore. I'm going to be in Ireland. I might sail back here someday, but... That's kind of my my end of my traveling days. You don't fly on planes anymore. No. What uh, inspired that decision? Well, it's a little. There is like an ecological reason because it's obviously not ideal. Yeah. Um, but also growing vegetables and having a farm, you can't really be away. Like that's more practically why. But also, it's actually just disengaging that thought that I can be somewhere it just rules out so many complications. Like people are like, oh, will you come over to this course in Spain? Oh, am I gonna drive there? No, okay, no, I'm not going. Rather than I could go, maybe I'll go, what are, the flight, what are the price of the flights? And you just get really confused. But actually life is so much simpler. You're just like, I'm here. And then I might go, it's not that I don't travel. I'm not afraid of traveling. I might decide to cycle somewhere or sail somewhere or whatever, but I'm, it's gonna be a bigger deal like when I decide to go. And it's so much more real and, you know, grounding. And especially when you have a family, you're not like just kind of kind of pulling them around and stuff. So, yeah. So I just went and said bye to all my friends all around the world that I've been kind of seeing every year. And they're all like, yeah, yeah, we'll see you, you know, in a few years. I'm like, you can come visit, but I, I, I won't be flying here. And I look forward to sailing back to all the places. Because I'm really, me and my wife love concept of sailing with her family and stuff someday but that could be a few years yet were there any conversations that you remember having with those people that were particularly hard um, you know, for you make friends on the road that's one of the beautiful things yeah, about yeah. being a surfer and traveling is you can go to any continent and there's a couch to sleep on yeah no and it's, it is beautiful and that's why i went around like that last season just going and really saying thanks and it was being epic but i won't be coming back because often you just don't contact people for years and then it's kind of you don't see them but it's nice just to kind of you know connect with them and say that was yeah great times anyone in particular 
uh, just some good friends in Australia, um, some good friends in Tahiti as well. And lots of people who maybe in similar boats that like I was at the time and we're going to continue the traveling buzz and stuff were basically say, oh, you'll be back, you'll be back because they didn't want to look at it. They didn't want to think of the idea of stopping at all. And that was, I could see it quite hard for them to hear that like, yeah, maybe slowing down is a nice idea because it is, it's like, a, you know, you're on a train, you're on a train track and, you know, you're going along and you, it's really hard to get off. Because once you're on it, you're seeing the next swell or the next thing. and Yeah. There's a kind of spiritual death that occurs when we make those big transitions in life. Mm. And people react to death in different ways. You ever see someone who gets angry at the person who died? Yeah, yeah. Like, damn you, Roger! Yeah. Damn it! Why? <laughs> you know, because we, we have a hard time um, processing the big changes in life. And a lot of times we go down kicking and screaming. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like, I think I've had the most um, issues or issues or people having the most issues with me <laughs> um, with people at home, like friends of mine. Because I come back here and I'm in the mud, in the rain, you know, growing vegetables, making no money and getting less surf. And people are like, what are you doing? Like, you know, you ha you're getting paid. To you're the, like a, the only paid Irish surfer getting paid. And you can still be doing this. And in your like we're here stuck here we don't want to be here and you should be often you know taking what is it like you should be almost respecting the position i'm in and i'm like but i'm enjoying this like i really enjoyed that that was great but i'm actually really enjoying this now and it was really hard for people to take really and it actually took me like delivering them fresh garlic and things like that for them to go oh now i get it you know because it's like those little things that don't you know make any sense but, you know, having your own garlic, people are like, oh, yeah, because I can't get fresh garlic. Cool. Now I see what you're doing. And it's like little subtle things that are kind of priceless. Right. Yeah. Uh, you ever seen the movie Goodwill Hunting? Yeah. Remember the scene when Ben Affleck's talking to, to Matt Damon? He's like, if you're here in 50 years, I'll fucking kill you. Like, you owe it to me to go out there yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and be all you can be. But. Yeah potential and and serving our potential um is kind of an abstract concept because if you feel like you're doing more for your community for your family if you feel more fulfilled as a human on this spiritual path as we're hurling through space you know in this limited time that we're here who's to tell you that you should be a pro surfer right now yeah. You know, like that's, and that takes uh, a certain amount of mental fortitude to stick to your guns. And the other mad one is actually that the best ways I've ever surfed are probably here anyway. So it's kind of like, uh, there's actually even more to that, that it's like, it's almost disrespectful for me to leave here to go to other waves when they're here. Like they mightn't happen very often and it could have to wait a long time, but someday, sooner or later, there'll be world-class waves right beside me. So what am I, you know, needing to go away for? I could just wait and surf them when they come. Right. So it's not really a hardship. Yeah. Uh, Would you ever be open to being a, a professional surfer with the agreement that you weren't going to travel and that you were going to live this life? I mean, there are plenty of brands out there. Well, I am. You are? Oh, yeah. so you're sponsored. Yes. The only thing that pays my bills is uh, Finisterre and Nixon are my last two sponsors. And yeah, they totally know. They know what I do and why I do it. And they support me. And yeah, it's great. Like Nixon was amazing. They they know I don't travel. And they have the Nixon Challenge where they go with a team everywhere. So they're like, okay, you don't travel. So we'll come to Ireland. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So it was really like kind of cool and they got to come and they all helped out on the farm for a day like all these pro surfers were helping on the farm for a day and like Finisterre totally gets it and they have team trips in Ireland all the time and just come camp on the farm and yeah they're really into it so yeah so you uh you made that decision uh after saying goodbye to all these friends on the road you came back to Ireland and you decided that you were going to get a farm one way or another or did you own a farm no, already? No, I didn't have anything. I was renting this house that we're sitting in now. Um, and I just started growing like with four raised beds and a little glass house that I built here. And what I started doing is, you know, friends that I know here who have their house and their quarter of an acre. I was like, oh, you ever thought about going veg? And, you know, the classic, oh, yeah, I'd love to if I only had enough time. And, and I just go, I'll do it. 
So I used to go to people's houses and do their gardens and just make them a back, you know, a backyard vegetable garden. And I, in that summer, I did 12 gardens and just started all these gardens for people who are now still using them and still doing them themselves. But I got to really meet people and like stay and have dinner in their house and, you know, talk about food and all these tip and, and go to different parts of the coast where I wouldn't have really hung out, but stay there for a couple of days working there and getting to know people. And it's just a lovely way to kind of integrate into, you know, people, you know, and then someone, yeah, told someone that I was mad into growing veg. And then a guy that I know said, oh, I have a piece of land that I'm not using. You can have that. And that's still now our community garden, which we bought off him in the end. So it's actually totally the communities. And then he also loaned us then another acre of land. So we went from a half acre, then he loaned us an acre. So all of a sudden we had an acre to grow veg on. And we had that for two years. And then we even started our going to market and having a CSA on that borrowed acre. But then he asked for it back. And they were like, but we always knew it was coming. And then we're like, okay, what do we do? And then one of the neighbors here on this, this hill suggested that there was a piece of land that might be for sale so we went and asked there and it was so we bought that three years ago we've been there for three years and then last spring um there's a neighboring farm that went up for sale and it's like 60 acres of land and we had you know we didn't have six grand in the bank like we had no money and we're like cool it's like great dream but it's probably not going to happen but anyway we'll kind of dream about it and then forestry was trying to buy it. Three different forestry companies were trying to buy it. And what they do here is they plant Sitka spruce, which is a non-native monoculture, terrible for the soil. Yeah, it's just a terrible wood. Sitka spruce. So is that for uh, lumber? Yeah, not even. It ends up being like chipboard and toilet roll and stuff. Like it doesn't actually do anything. And it's terrible for terrible for the land. Like they clear cut it all. Yeah, terrible for community and taking, you know, you know, farmland out of production that could be, you know, doing loads of other enterprises rather than just one big monoculture. So we're just like, we have to stop that. We can't have a Sika spruce plantation around us. So we just outbidded them with no money. We just said, uh, yeah, we'll match that. <laughs> and we had no money whatsoever. <laughs> so that was Put a, on your best straight face. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We, we have it, the money. Yeah. And then we were like, okay, shit. So we started ringing around friends and family and it was an amazing story. Like we ended up getting like 17 friends and family lending us money. And then one kind of ethical bank lent us a hundred grand. And so, yeah, we managed to just about scrape together the money, but with no money whatsoever. So then we launched a crowdfunding campaign in the middle of it and managed to raise like 60,000 euro and we're actually selling a few little plots back to some neighbors because it's just nice to keep the community involved so we're going to pay the bank back now very soon and then we'll have a 200 grand loan to friends and family but like we had no money and we have this huge piece of land now that can be the community and it's it's putting it's being put into a, a clg with a company limited by guarantee so it's not ours and it can only do what it says it intends to do. And if for some reason we can't do it, we have no money, it gets sold and all the money or the land goes to a project similar. And you make money through CSAs, which are community-supported yeah. agriculture, yeah. farmer's market. And a farmer's market. Uh, yeah, okay. Well. So that's that's the way that you can make money. So paint the picture for me. Like, What's the dream <clears throat> now that you have all this land? Yeah. So I grew up in a market garden, so that's kind of where we started. That's what we're doing. We're three years. We've done three years. It'll be our fourth year. We were 50 members last year. It'll be 75 this year, maybe even more. Uh, for six months of the year, and... So yeah, vegetables, what I grew up doing, that's where we're starting. But the idea, like my dad only ever did markets. So they're kind of just very seasonal, what people want. But the idea of CSAs is you're feeding people their diet, you know, trying to feed a family's diet from the locality year round. So we're, we'd be looking to do at least nine months, maybe even, you know, 10 or 12 months if we can for 150 members. That's our goal. And we really looked into it. We did a tour of England of a load of CSA farms. And have you ever heard of the Dunbar theory of 150? Dunbar's number, yeah. yeah. You can only hold 150 people in your yeah. mind. So, uh, 
like really knowing you can only yeah. really know 150 people so that's kind of the concept that we'd only ha- take on 150 members and then when we get to that point then there needs to be another farm and someone else has to start up and so we'd have loads of small csa farms rather than us be the farm that feeds the whole area and then we don't know anyone and we're just churning out veg because that's what you do in business and growth and stuff so we're not going to do that so it's 150 members hopefully year-round and then we want to give them their diet. We want to give them what they can eat, the best food they can eat from this land. So it's obviously vegetables, but then it's the fruit, then it's meat if people want it, then it's eggs, it's dairy. That's what grows here. And yeah, that's what we're going to try and provide. So the bigger farm is now going into animals and fruit as well. Wow. Were there any models that you were following or people who inspired you as you were building um, this kind of remarkable dream? I'm guessing that you didn't have all these skills initially when you made that decision to become a farmer. Uh, Yeah, like I remember in Tahiti, literally when this happened in Tahiti, when I smashed my knee, I've still the book that I wrote down exactly. I wrote down I needed 78 acres and I had all the plan, like all this. And now with 60 acres and 17 acres, it's 77 acres. So it's exactly what I imagined. And I had no idea what land we were ever going to buy. But anyway, I wrote down very clearly that that was kind of what I wanted to do. And so that's very practically food-wise and a CSA model. But the other huge part of the dream is the community side, which is... You know, we do a lot a lot of events, like have a lot of music, a lot of gigs. We're having a festival, which will start this September, which will be every year. Um, loads of tours, loads of kind of things with kids. And then a huge part is all the healing. Like, we're all in pain. Like, everyone's got a dietary or, you know, mental illness. Like, we're all struggling. And society is not coping and it's not giving us solutions. And it's only ever going to come from people doing it on the ground and i think farmers and landowners have this amazing potential and position where like being in nature being outside drinking clean water eating good food working with people seeing kids playing and animals healthy that's the most stable like place for your mind to be and then you can start to heal like trying to heal people in rehab or down the line but they're not drinking clean water, good food, or doing purposeful work, it's it's hard to get through your stuff. But if you're in around that good environment where there's a real purpose, you know, we are feeding 150 families and there's all these things happening. But I, yeah. It's a more holistic way to look at it. Yeah. That's for sure. And uh, the mind and the body are not separate as much as we would like to think that they are. So it's it's very difficult to get the mind right when the body isn't healthy. Um, and when there's no community, mm. you know, that's one thing that we've, we've lacked is although we live in the social media era, people feel more lonely than ever. Yeah. And it's this kind of comparison culture where, uh, we feel like we're not good enough because we see people who are cooler than us on social media. And, uh, a lot of more recent arguments around, uh, depression and PTSD also are th- that it, the, those are the result of lack of community. And that it's not actually even traumatic instances that are solely responsible for creating PTSD. It's that these instances occur and then we have no um, friends and family and community to support us move, support us to move through those processes. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. I think that food and farmers um, hold a kind of um, beacon you know, they're, they're like that shining light. Everyone's got to eat three times a day. And if we're more purposeful about how we get our food and how we engage with our community, um, it can serve as a real healing process. Mm. So that's the plan. Yeah. It's a bit of a long-term one. There's so much more to it as well. Like farm school, co-housing is a big thing that we're a part of trying to start because housing is a huge issue here. Is it? Yeah, massive. And like, you know, who has a quarter of a million to go and build a standalone house? Like, especially if you want to be a farmer, it's just not going to work. Right. But you can build a house for 30,000 euro easily. And why aren't we? Because the system isn't allowing it or isn't created for it. So, 
yeah, we're working with some amazing architects who are going to really like try and just kind of somehow break through all that years of bureaucracy that it's going to be hard to do. But it's actually the time like we need to feed people, house like basic stuff, get that right. And then we're, you know, we're not stressing. We're not we don't need to work five days a week and not think about why I'm in pain because I have to pay the bills. It's like make a dry, warm house. It shouldn't be a big deal. And people who want to go and do good things on the land, they should be allowed to live there. Because what it is now is like all these great people doing good stuff, but then they're renting a terrible house somewhere and driving away from it. And yeah, so we're going to really look at that as a big thing we're trying to do as well. How's uh, the surf community here responded to all this work that you're doing? It's cool. Yeah, like it's really interesting, especially people kind of coming through or coming visiting the area and stuff it's uh i suppose a dream of mine in the very beginning was if, uh, if we can set up a kind of a because all of us are surfers um a farm that is run by surfers and surfers like when surfers are the only group in society that have free time like they've built their life around having free time so at the expense of relationships yep. and family <laughs> Trust totally. me, man. But we, we all know it well <laughs> But it's amazing because... But babe, it's the best well in 10 years. <laughs> you won't understand. Exactly. But it's also an amazing position to be in for like for farming. There's no boss. You know, nature's the boss. And you can not turn up for two hours or two days and it'll still be there. You might have to, you know, do a bit more weeding. But, you know, nothing's going to fall apart in a few hours. So you can still serve when the ways are good. But then you can also do something else right next to the sea or, you know, we like being physical. We like being outside. It's it's they go hand in hand, but it's just not quite there yet. Mm. But a dream of mine was that you could go around the world and there'd be these surfing kind of farms where you could just stay and do a bit of work, eat good food. But being a surf culture that you can go surfing as well. And yeah, so a lot of surfers would kind of drop in when there's no ways like they come down over a swell and then maybe hang on and then do a bit of work for a while and things like that and it's cool that is very cool yeah, yeah I think it's on surfers radar uh, more than ever largely due to um, the protesting that's been happening in Hawaii against the agrochemical companies okay. and the surfer led um, protests um, I think has because Hawaii is such a hub you know, for surf and surf media that has, um, resulted in that kind of, um, that kind of thinking, um, arising in a lot of surfers minds, which is cool because if, even if you are a pro surfer getting paid a ton of money, it's not going to last forever. And what are you going to do after that? You better be building skills as you're surfing professionally that are transferable later in life because mm. you're not going to be getting paid when you're 50, 60 years old. Yeah, and it's just enjoyable. Yeah, that's the main thing. You're like the big thing as well. I found when I was surfing, like full on, it's like you know anyone who wants to get really into it. You're you're looking at your health. You're looking at your fitness. You're looking at your diet. And I wasn't being fed very well by traveling. You know, I wasn't enjoying you know how I was feeling by the nutritional levels I was eating. And the only way I could really be sure is if I went and grew it myself. And yeah, like you, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you can't get any fresher than if you grow it. Is it true that you ran for mayor? Uh, the general election. It's like uh, the before politicians for each county. Okay. So I ran for that, which it would have been in yeah the main government. What uh, prompted that? Uh, it was a friend who was meant to be running, and then she pulled out, and she convinced me to go. But it, like I decided myself because yeah, it's really important that we have a green voice and also the issues and the reasons and the ideas that I'm doing people should know like and hear about it and it's an amazing platform you know I was on the radio you're in the newspaper you're in debates with all the politicians and I was not once ever objected or like no one ever disagreed with one thing I said ever no I'm sure people disagreed with no, what you had to say they didn't disagree so what were they the didn't. points that just that like that you were running on like a big thing is the, the huge thing in every election is always health and they're always talking about health 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 and it's like well if we're talking about health we import 70 percent of our food here that we can grow would that not be a health issue should we talk about that and it's generally just silence after that 
because it's a huge issue. It's complex and no one wants to go there. They want to get more beds. They want to get more doctors. So, so lay that out for people. Why is it that uh, an island like Ireland imports 70% of their food? Hawaii imports, I think, over 90% of their food as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's How did this happen? It happened in the 60s and 70s when the supermarket was created and they had this great idea and this guy came down to the market and said to all the farmers, like, you're down here in the wind and the rain, guys. Like, I'll be the supermarket and you, I'll pay you the same stuff, the same as you guys. You're Sounds going, super. Oh, this is a great idea. And I said, like, I don't have to come every week. Cool. And he's like, yeah, I'll give you, I'll drop it off there once a week and you sell it for me and they get the same price. And this was going brilliant. And they're all having a great time at home, just having f- free time, just growing their veg, didn't have to go to town. And he's like, oh, but I have another guy who's actually offering it to me a bit cheaper. So unless you want to still supply the supermarket, you're going to have to match him now. And therein lies the problem where it started. And the markets then closed down. They didn't exist here anymore because there was no need for them. So the farmer then doesn't have a market to go back to to keep his prices the way he needs to. So then he's just in that... So then the prices go down, so then he has to produce more and da-da-da. But anyway, that's just about that. But what that does then is is pushes out the farmers from growing food. And they're just like, you know what, I'm just going to go and work in the bank or going to go work in an office. It's way easier. So yeah, this huge just like loss of farmers, really. Like everyone here grew veg. Every hotel, everything had their veg growing locally by farmers. There's nobody like for miles and miles in this area growing food. So what do you say to um, the argument that there are over 7 billion people on planet Earth right now and we need large-scale farming to feed everyone? Uh, that is not true. Um, that's 60% of the world's food is still produced by small farms. Um, it's what's fed us forever. and it's 60% of the world's food is still, still produced? produced by small farms. Wow. The, the only people who eat on massive scale is Westerners, really. Like most of the world is still hand-tilled people all over Africa, all over Asia. They're not using combine harvesters. Like it's a small percentage of the population of the world that actually, because we just don't farm here. It's like 1% of the population in the UK actually farm. Where in Africa it's like 98%. You know, it's like we're just so different. So yeah, it's always worked. It's always worked by people doing it themselves. We've never needed it. We just aren't doing it. Like there's more people in, you know, phone shops in cities and stuff. If they were farming, then we wouldn't need to, you know, like they say for a sustainable countries, if we had 30% of the population growing food, it'd be fine. But having 1%, then you need big farms. Right. So, So that's one thing. And the other thing is if you actually just do the maths, that like there's plenty of acres on the land for how many billion people they're going to be. That's not a problem. People need to stop worrying about that being a problem. The problem is how we manage soil. And managing soil and looking after our nutrients is a lot harder. Well, basically, it's just it's done very badly when it's done with big machines. It's very hard to manage soil nicely. Can you lay that process out for me? Most people don't think about soil at all. Well, you should. It's the only thing that keeps you alive. Those first couple of inches on the earth are why we're here and it keeps everything alive. So, yeah, and it's really scary because, yeah, we're eroding soil at such a rate that the UN said here three years ago that we had 60 harvests left in the world. 60 harvests at the rate we're going. Globally. globally, we have 60 harvests because the soil the dies. What, what yeah, happens? The, the, if we continue farming the way we are and the way we are degrading topsoil, soil will not be able to feed us anymore after 60 years. So what we've been doing in less than 100 years has managed to degrade soil so rapidly. And it's only from machines. You know, it's only from machines. So, yeah, big scale... Can be done better, can be done much better. So, you know, there is room for that. But really, we need more people on the land. And people think, oh, we don't want to be peasants. We don't want to be poor farmers like all of us on the land. Da, da, da. But it's not, that's not the case. It's really enjoyable. enjoyable. Like, it was one of the most noble professions there ever was, was farming. 
but now it's the highest suicide rate of any profession in the world. Really? It's farming. Yeah. Even more than dentists? <laughs> like, it's really sad and it's not a good state that farming's in. But that's why it's like in this country here, like there's people leaving farming all the time, all the time. And there's us buying a farm, getting ourselves 300,000 euro in debt because we want to. Like this is the future. This is where it's at. This is so exciting. This is what we have to do if we want to live on this planet for much longer. So how do you uh, regenerate topsoil with the farming practices that you uh, employ? We could be here a long time really? talking about this, but yeah, it's a it's a huge uh, huge topic, and it depends what you're doing. Give me the the summary. Basically, one thing I would say is uh, the thing I've just learned recently is what the Alan Savory or the Savory Institute has come up with is this holistic context, and we look at problems, we look at things from a reductionary view with science, and that's not really working. We need to look at the whole, like we need to look at everything. You need to look at, you know, how everything go affects everything else. And if you think like that, and the other thing he says, that the number one thing to do, when you go make a decision with Mother Earth out there, assume you're wrong. If you assume you're wrong as you go make a decision, then you've got a chance. If you go out there going, I've got it, I've got the right idea, this is going to save the world, I'm going to just keep doing this. You could be doing that, like driving at home all day, every day, thinking you're right. And it could be completely wrong. But we're so stubborn, we just, we think we're right. But if you assume you're wrong as you make a decision, you're ready for the first sign of it going wrong. And then you're ready to adapt and change. Because Mother Earth will tell you, she'll show you every time something's going wrong, it'll be like, yeah, that plant's looking a bit weak. Okay, I'm wrong. Okay, what 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 happened? So if we assume we're wrong and we look at the whole, that's, uh, that's yeah, it's big stuff and it takes a lot of thinking. And it's so complex. Like what Alan Savory, if, he, if anyone wants to look him up, he's an amazing man, amazing story. He's got a good TED Talk. Yeah. And yeah, we, we just don't know enough. Like we have to really be humble beings on this earth and realize that we not knowing is messing things up. And we need to realize we don't know and be really humble about trying to do what's right because otherwise, yeah, we won't be here for that much longer. And that doesn't really matter if we don't want to be. You know, the earth will continue on without us. But if we do have kids, which I have, it gets quite important then. You know, you, you know, it gets kind of like, oh shit, like it won't be so good for them. The water mightn't be clean. Then, you know, it gets kind of, kind of a lot more serious. And yeah, but it seemed like you had this kind of uh, anxiety about the earth and, and uh, not only anxiety, but desire to help. Like you think about more than just yourself. And it seemed like you had that thought before you had kids. Totally. Yeah. I, I actually was uh, trying to be a celibate before all of this because I knew what mission I was on I didn't want to complicate it with someone else having to get dragged into my uh, my mad world and I was on such a mission but my wife somehow managed to convince me otherwise they tend to do that <laughs> but yeah so you were you were thinking that you weren't going to have kids yeah I was just like I know what mission I'm on and I don't want anyone to have to be on this crazy journey because was there an environmental uh thought around that as well like the environmental Im not impacts of having no, kids not really like that I'm, it was more just like i'm on a mission i don't want to yeah have to deal I, not that i don't have to deal with someone i just i didn't want someone to have to take on my kind of almost 60 acre farm <laughs> yeah my life of work like cause right. I, for me like it's i'm a total martyr by the way and you might know might have noticed already but like i really have had an amazing life of surfing traveling and I'm kind of like, cool, like I'm of service now, like I'm done. I'm going to work and if someone needs help or some, if the environment needs help, I'll do it because I've had a really good time and I'll continue to have a really good time out in the sea for as long as I can. But I also am of service because that's every other animal is. They all work for one, one place, but we don't as humans, like we decide you know, we want to do something else, but actually I want to be of help. That's kind of my mission. And yeah, this is the best mission I could kind of come up with. And yeah. You feel it? Like, do you feel it in your, 
uh, stomach before you can intellectualize if you're on the wrong track or on the right track? Totally, yeah. Like I have, you know, I don't want to get into it, but I've, you know, I have no money. I have huge debts, all this kind of like scary, two kids, no house, like no idea how any of this is going to work out. Like no idea. And I should be worried about it. Like if supposedly when you're a parent, you're meant to get really worried about these things, but I'm not worried. Like I just, it feels right. I need to do this. And, you know, I suppose the deep thing for me, uh, people might say it's a bit corny, but the land will feed me. So I'm not that worried. And I'm going to look after that and everything else can figure itself out. I'm not going off to town to go and work because I should do that to buy some stuff. And yeah. Do you ever want to make a lot of money? No, not really. I'd like to make money. It's weird. It's a complicated one that because... I've such an aversion to money in loads of ways, and we really do as a farm. We're not very good at uh, asking for money or things like that. But anyway, um, but but that's yeah. kind of a big issue. Like, yeah. I want to dig into this yes. because so I went to Gaia University, which is uh, a a university that was founded on permaculture principles, and it was amazing for what I was able to do at the time. I, I started the surfing for change series while I was at school, getting a degree. A lot of other students were into permaculture and ag, uh, their, their degrees were in agriculture. And I found that there was culturally with other students that I was going to school with an affliction to making money, which created a lot of real struggles for them. And I think that we need to have a more positive relationship with making money if we want to incentivize more smart people like yourself to get involved with farming. Yeah, no, and I totally agree. And I, I don't know, it's just a, yeah, it's a, it's a story and it's a relation everyone has with money, but it's, yeah, I didn't ever look to make money, but then I got paid to go surfing. So I just followed my dreams. I followed my heart. I went following what I wanted to do. And I got paid, like I got paid so I could actually put money into a farm. So it kind of worked. And now I'm putting them, all the money's gone into the farm. I believe in this farm and it will make money. Uh, it could definitely have a lot better, you know, organized style. Cause yeah, we're terrible, but, um, I would love the farm to make shit loads of money. So then I could go buy another farm for someone else and like do all these really cool things. And I think we will get there, but it's, there's a, a relationship with learning about money and there's definitely like an allergic reaction to a lot of people when it comes to money. And we would be so guilty of it. Like we don't need money, you know? And then you're like, oh, I'm broke, hold on a second. Yeah, yeah, it's a big one, man. Money, sex, you know, there are certain issues in society that we don't want to talk about. Yeah. And as a result, we tend to have a really unhealthy relationship with both of those, you know, yeah. people who are either addicted to sex or not getting enough sex, people who are addicted to making money, which is also a problem because then you start building skyscrapers with your fucking name on them yeah. and you don't know when is enough. But if you know when's enough, like when you when you have enough money and what you're going to do with that money, I think is is also really important. Like have that number in mind so that you can create more good. Like I'm, I'm hugely inspired by people who are multi multi millionaires and they use their money for conservation because at the end of the day, like we are living in this world right now where there are very few amount of people who have massive control and they're the ones who are influencing lawmakers to, um, benefit a few when the many down here don't really have a voice. And, um, I don't know. I, yeah. I think that it's, it, yeah. it's important to think about that kind it is. of stuff. I suppose with us is like we have a huge community support. And if we started out like we're here making money, people just say, oh, that's their business and that's what they're doing. And But we like have 30 people or more helping us out in the farm and it's neighbors and it's friends and people passing through because they feel the need to help. Like... You know, people come and donate stuff all the time because we don't have anything. Like, our whole lives, all our money, all our energy is there. And they see it and they feel it and they want to help more. Like, so there's a bit of that. But, yeah, we, we're we doing a course online at the moment and this is kind of getting us a bit more shaped up. Yeah. Is there a way where people can support you right now? 
Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, Get a PayPal account set up, dude. No, we do have a tree charity that people can donate into because we have that. Um, so people can plant trees in Ireland if they want to, which is cool. Um, so we've been, because the thing, the forestry thing is really messed up here. So we want, and people are so disengaged from trees. So we just set up this charity where people can, if they like trees, and it's a lot of companies, a lot of surf companies that, you know, feel a bit guilty about you know what they're doing and they go cool i can donate 500 euro and i've planted some trees and we go off and plant the trees that's cool so that's something we do and that's really cool buzz and and then everyone comes and plants the trees and they come and see the trees and they're getting more involved in it they're getting into a story of forestry and woodland and you know it's not just some part of the government is planting trees over there and it's fenced off it's a very different relationship so that's one thing yeah the um Giving people the gift of transparency is a very enriching experience. And showing people where their food comes from, um, showing people what their money is going towards um, is a a really cool aspect of being human. Mm. Uh, I think that a lot of problems arise from us using our money and using our time in ways where we don't see the full impact of our decisions, whether that's the t-shirt that we buy and, and having no uh, understanding of who made that t-shirt, how much they're getting paid, how they're getting treated, or the f- kind of food that we buy and, and looking upstream at all the people and, and the environment that it's impacting. And when you can do that and just have a more cohesive view of, of the impact that you're having. Um, it can be really cool. So I, I admire you for constantly digging into yourself and literally digging into the earth mm. to, uh, to gain a better relationship. Yeah. And I suppose I'll definitely make a point in all of this is the biggest thing that I've learned and the biggest I wouldn't say problem but challenge and work the real work is communication skills with ourselves with the earth like there are two big places to start like how we relate and communicate with everything we do and then each other and yeah what community is all about communities fall apart more regularly than they stay together what is it i have the stat here now 95 percent of communities fail and of the five percent 95 percent of the five percent are religious ones so only five percent of the five percent ever succeed that aren't religious wow so it's a small amount of communities that ever really keep going and we all can imagine why, but it comes down to we were never taught how to communicate. No one ever sat you down and said, when someone comes at you really angry, here's a few tips, here's a few things to do. We all just have to fumble through the world and different characters act in different ways, different things happened to us in the past, so then you react in other patterns. And it's just so complex and it has us completely allergic to working with people because of what might happen. And yeah, so we do loads and loads of uh, nonviolent communication workshops and getting facilitators in and having events and all that stuff. And it's so tiring and it's so long and it's so just head wrecking, painful, but oh it's the best thing ever at the same time because when you get through some of those breakthroughs then life actually gets fun like then you can you can really know someone and you can go so far and then all these projects start happening then you can get into these really complex sticky things because you're able to deal with all the sticky things yeah uh we do the work so that we can play yeah right uh yeah and as humans we really only have two modes there's communication and then there's violence. Yeah. And we're either operating in one of those two modes. And there are parts in the world, parts of the world right now where we've lost one of those modes. And you say, well, communication is b- broken down. I'm going to try and kill you. And you're going to try and kill me. So when the stakes are that high, putting as much effort as possible into nonviolent communication could be one of the most important decisions we ever make. Yeah. Yeah, the things you don't learn in school, man. Yeah. 
and I, it's really boring. To, people get really kind of angry <laughs> at the idea of nonviolent communication because they just they don't want to go there, and people have often have had bad experiences with it and stuff. But it's just like, it's just hard work. Like you have to really look at your own stuff and realize that, geez, I am pretty shit. I, saying something sometimes and I have these patterns of doing this and doing that and it's really hard but then you go cool okay now I know that now next time when I have that situation I won't make that person flip out because I'll be aware of this and it's just it is a magical kind of place when you start having that happen because you've got this amazing baseline to work with with people then yeah, well, it takes a certain amount of humility to do exactly what you said earlier which is to assume that you might be wrong mm. I mean, I'm never wrong, but um, <laughs> other people are. <laughs> Fuck all y'all. Um, yeah, you ever heard the saying, if enough people tell you you're drunk, it might be time to sit down? <laughs> yeah, so that's, yeah, that's the hardest stuff that we're really doing. So if people come to, uh, to Ireland and want to check you out, can they come uh, help out on the farm and there are other ways for people to get involved yeah yeah um if you really want to come for a length of time and stuff it's best get in touch in advance and we'll see if we have space and things like that because accommodation is an issue um but if you just want to drop in every tuesday is always our work day and that's always a good buzz we start with yoga have a work day lunch and you take home a lot of veg and it's, yeah, it's a really good day and you meet loads of people from the area and yeah, it's like 30 people working in the garden. You don't see it in most fields. It's nice. Um, well, let's wrap up here soon, but give people, um, paint people a picture of what this place is like. This is my first time here and, um, there must be a reason that you've stayed here, um, and yeah, just just describe it for people a little bit. Um, yeah, I suppose Clare is very different to a lot of other counties. It's quite flat, um, although then it's got really tall cliffs. But there's no mountains here um, because of the, the reason it's a flat county. That's what makes it have such good waves. Because the ma- the mountainous counties is where I'm from are beautiful, but mountains are really hard rocks. It's all about geology, so hard rocks don't make such good waves. Flat, soft, kind of limestone pavements is kind of what we want here for making good waves. So that's kind of, yeah, here it's green fields, small little towns, no real big towns. And yeah, just pretty wild, pretty rural, lots of pubs, not much else. Really wet all the time and windy. Um... But yeah, I suppose, yeah, I've traveled all over the world and I've settled here for loads of reasons. The waves are amazing, being a huge one. Um, but for me, it's home, like it's my culture. Like I can't really sing the Tahitian songs very well, you know, and it's that stuff that's more kind of real to me when you, you know, just the Irish sayings, just the kind of comfort of coming home and, you know, what I grew up with. It's kind of I'm used to it and it's, yeah, it's home to me. All right, oh man. Well, hey, thanks for taking the time to sit down with me. Thank you, Kyle. Yeah. Um, so I know you're on Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter. What's your handle? <laughs> uh, I'm actually not. <laughs> but the farm is. At, you're at the farm. Come check them out. Yeah. Moy Hill Farm. Uh, Moy Hill Farm. Is there on certain things, I'm yeah. sure. Right on, man. Um, thank you for taking the time. Thank you. That's our show, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, I'm going to be speaking at the Global Waves Conference at 3.15 p.m. on March 7th with Greg Long. So if you are in the Santa Cruz area, come on down. I'm going to play you out with a song by one of our listeners. Uh, One of our listeners sent this to me. His name is Nate Maingard, and this is a song called Beautiful. I will link to Nate's band page in the show notes on my website, kyle.surf, and that is also where you can get in touch with me. Have a beautiful day, get outside, get in the ocean, and as always, give someone a high five. Talk to you soon. We walk towards and through sunlight. 
The river chuckled at our whispered words, and fruit fell sticky from my fingers. I lost my last chance not to fall in love with you. What an entropic thing, awakened from a nightmare, and you are beside me. It's From a nightmare, you are beside me. It's beautiful, beautiful. 